0: been a, a blessing to spend time with a number of families over the past few weeks, and um, and it was a privilege to be with you last Lord's Day to bring the Word of God to begin our study of Psalm forty-six, and of course, after the service last Lord's Day, we we had a Q and A Q&A time, and. Uh, great number of of great variety of questions were raised. I think my favorite was just that I would share my testimony. You know, for a child of God, it's a joy to share one's testimony. Why? Because when we share our testimony, all that we're really explaining is that God saved us, and this is how God did this. This is how he opened my eyes. And These are the circumstances in which he did this. It's really an opportunity to boast and brag in the mercy and grace of God. In sharing my testimony, I was reminded, though, of the fact that, um, and I think I mentioned this last time, that God had cocooned me and surrounded me with a great number of beloved brethren who, Um, mentored me and encouraged me in my youth. I was a very, very uneducated and secular young man, and I knew nothing about the Bible. And so it was a great privilege to have brethren who loved me enough to nurture me in my early years. And I'm thankful for those early experiences because, yes, I did have a number of mentors who helped me greatly. I will mention, though, that A number of years after that, those early days of my my youth in Christ, I remember hearing a report that one of the individuals who had mentored me, a man, he had fallen in sin and ended up stepping away from the ministry as a result. And this individual I admired greatly. And I've got to tell you, it was crushing to me when I heard that he had failed in the ministry. And honestly, I will say this, it probably was too crushing. Or I could say it this way, it was a little too devastating. It really hurt. And while I don't celebrate what happened, I'm sorry to say that this man fell in this manner. I'm thankful for God in his divine providence, how it is that he used that to teach me this very, very important lesson. God is my refuge and my strength, and he and he alone is that great help in time of trouble. And there is no substitute for him. Honestly, it was an early lesson in my life to realize that I need to trust in God and make him my soul foundation it's a very basic lesson but I would say to you it is a crucial lesson that every believer needs to learn and mark this like any other lesson in the Christian life it's not a lesson that you just learn once and then you're done for the rest of your life like any other lesson as a believer these are things that we continue to need to learn again and again and again And we need to be deepened in these lessons. This is why I asked you to go ahead and look at in advance the the hymn, Jesus, Lover of My Soul, in preparation for this morning, because we just sang those words, Other Refuge Have I None. That is a powerful statement. And it is a crucial statement that needs to be made genuinely by the child of God when I knew that I was going to be here and I would have the opportunity, the privilege to share the word of God with you, I have to say there were a great number of texts, passages of scripture that came to mind that I might uh, consider preaching. But Psalm 46 was the text that kept coming back to me because I was thinking about this idea of the fact that we all need to learn. And really, this is a universal Lesson that every child of God needs to understand and learn is that we all struggle with fear and we all struggle with the uncertainties of life and circumstances and our future. In other words, it's a very normal experience to struggle with these things. The good news is, again, is that we can mortify these ungodly fears in view of the confidence that we have in the Lord. We all struggle, as James says, we all struggle in many ways, and we all fall into the trap of trying to strive by our own strength rather than in the strength of the Lord. And when we forget that God is our greatest helper and provider and protector, then we try to resort to other means of protection and And safety in this life. And I believe that we all need to be reminded of the fact that we must, and we are called to do this, we are called to walk not with timidity in this life, but with boldness. And that is a boldness that must be rooted in our confidence in God, not in ourselves. It can never be in ourselves. And while I realize that the word boldness doesn't appear in Psalm 46, let's face it. The person who is fearless amidst mountains slipping into the heart of the sea and the waters roaring up and the mountains quaking, the person who is fearless in the face of that seriously, obviously, is a person who has boldness. And such fearlessness, such boldness is what we must embrace. Why? Because we are called to be soldiers of the cross of Christ. Brethren, I said it last week. I think I did. Anyway, we're at war. The sooner we grasp that, the better off we'll be. But the bottom line is, is that we are in the midst of war. And though we are weak in and of ourselves, we have to remember that we have real strength in Christ. And we have real armament with which we can address this battle. And Paul says that the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but he says they are what? Divinely powerful. And thanks be to God, they are in fact divinely powerful. Because we are against up against a powerful foe. And this is why it is important that we understand, again, that we are in the midst of a spiritual battle. By the way, I think that when we are at times of peace or when things go well, I think we lose sight of that perspective. Sometimes it takes the agitation of trials and afflictions to kind of wake us up and say, hey, don't forget where you are. You're on a front line in the middle of a war. By the way, why am I bringing this up? And why am I talking about the idea of the Christian being a soldier in a battle? Well, because obviously God's word says this again and again and again. And because the person who's being sent into battle needs to make sure that they're taking the right weapons with them. Not the weapons of our own creation, but the weapons of warfare that God has provided, that is, the whole armor of God. Imagine what an act of cruelty it would be if you sent a soldier to the front line and said to him, you know, you're going to a really lush resort that's populated with people that are really going to be friendly to you. That soldier is going to go to the front line, probably not bringing a single weapon with him. And he's going to go as a sheep in the midst of wolves and he's going to be torn apart. It is cruelty to tell a child of God that we're not at war, that this world loves you. And that our chief goal is to befriend this world. James says, friendship with this world is hostility to God because of the enmity that the Bible addresses. Our commander in chief, the Lord Jesus Christ, didn't sugarcoat anything. He said, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. And so it is when we read the record in church history, the disciples faced this reality. Philip, we learn, was scourged, imprisoned, and crucified. James the Less had his brains dashed out with a fuller's club. Matthias was beheaded in Jerusalem. Andrew was crucified. Mark was dragged to pieces in Alexandria. Peter was crucified upside down. Paul was beheaded in Rome. Jude, the brother of James, was crucified in Edessa. Bartholomew was beaten and Crucified in India, Thomas was pierced through with a spear by pagan priests, Simon the Zealot was crucified, Luke was hanged on an olive tree by pagan priests in Greece. John survived all this somehow, but he didn't uh, escape persecution himself. He was exiled on the Isle of Patmos and somehow survived the experience of being boiled in oil. Let me say it again. The sooner we understand that we're in the midst of a spiritual war, the better off we will be. J.C. Ryle says it so well. He says the true Christian is called to be a soldier and must behave as such from the day of his conversion to the day of his death. He is not meant to live a life of religious ease, indolence, and security. He must never imagine for a moment that he can sleep and doze along the way to heaven, like one traveling in an easy carriage. If he takes his standard of Christianity from the children of the world, he may be content with such notions, but he will find no countenance from them in the word of God. If the Bible is the rule of his faith and practice, mark this, He will find his course laid down very plainly in this matter, and he must fight. We are to fight the good fight of faith, as Paul calls it. And brethren, I say to you, we are to do so without fear. And so Psalm 46 gives us antidotes to ungodly fear. And last Lord's Day, we began our study of Psalm 46, introducing really this concept of these antidotes to ungodly fear. We went through the the first two stanzas of this psalm in verses 1 through 7, and for time's sake, I'm not going to review all of that. But this morning, we're going to look at the third and final stanza. And I do think I said this last time, this psalm is so expansive and so deep we could have taken four weeks going through this psalm. That would have been easy enough. But here this morning, I want to move to the end of the psalm, and I want us to go to the, to the, final, the third and final stanza. And we're going to be looking at verses 8 through 11. And basically, we have two groupings of commands, two pairs of commands that are given to us, that really escalate this notion of our responsibility to entrust ourselves to God and God alone. In verse 8, we have this first pairing of commands. Where the psalmist says, Come, behold the works of the Lord, who has wrought desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariot with fire. So we're first going to look at those, that pairing of commands to come and behold the works of the Lord. Then comes another pairing of commands where God himself interjects this instruction, this command where he says, cease striving, And know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. And then the capstone of the psalm, which is a repeat of verse 7, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold, Selah. So all we're going to be doing here this morning is looking at the, we're going to be looking at the two paired commands in verse 8 and 10 and then finally at the end of this we're going to consider some of the implications and needful exhortations that come from these instructions so let's go back to the beginning here the first pair of commands that we find in verse 8 where we are told to come and behold the works of the lord we're told to co- to come and behold The works of the Lord. In a sense, both of these commands, both of these imperatives, really come together and formulate a single exhortation and command. In a sense, we're being told to to stop all of our activity, stop whatever you're doing, and examine the works of the Lord. A few months ago, I was talking to our son Josiah, and he said to me that uh, of all the things that he enjoys, whether being in the wilderness or being at the beach, he told me he loves being at the beach. So when Sandra took him to the beach, I got to tell you, he was just mesmerized. And he was stopping Sandra and his mom and saying, hey, mom, look at look at this, and then, look at the birds over here, and then look at these seashells. And so he was just, you know, again and again and again. And he was just saying, stop and look at these things. Stop and look at these things. Why? Because he was so captured by what he was seeing, the beauty of what God has made. It's kind of what we have here. It's an exhortation to stop whatever you're doing and to give the full force of your attention to the works of God. By the way, this is somewhat reflective of even how we began this psalm. Because at the beginning, we were given the opportunity to consider and contemplate the attributes of God, especially as they're expressed in his love and his mercy and his loving kindness for his own, again, where we learn that he is our refuge and our strength and our help, these really help us to think about the attributes of God, the the character of God. But in these verses, particularly in verse 8, we're now being instructed to examine God's works. This really helps us to think about a very important principle because we're moving from an analysis of God's attributes to God's works. And one thing we have to understand is that every being acts in accordance with their nature. And so when you sin, just keep in mind that you're acting in accordance with your sinful nature. God, on the other hand, God who is holy, does all things that are holy. Everything that he does is holy. God is good. Therefore, everything that he does is good. He is true. He is righteous. He is pure. Therefore, all that he does is consistent with his nature. And brethren, I believe that this is crucial for us to remember. Sometimes we degrade our understanding of this and we look at God's providence, and we question God. There's something within the clay that wants to question the potter and say, why did you do this? We have to fight against this. We have to resist this and say, God is good. God is holy. And even though I don't understand his divine providence and his actions and his works, The thing that I have to understand is, is that God acts in a manner that is consistent with his own nature. And when we examine his works, we see this. Now, what are the works that are mentioned here in the psalm? We are told to come and behold the works of the Lord. And then it says, who has wrought desolations in the earth... He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. In a sense, you have a depiction, a description of God's justice through his acts of desolation. You also have a description of his mercy in that he causes wars to cease. As for the desolations that are mentioned here the word shama simply speaks of calamities it could be either a natural calamity brought about by god's intervention or a supernatural judgment of god in our observance of those calamities such desolations are important God brings about desolations in the earth and we see in that work of his, his justice. By the way, Rahab gave testimony to her faith in God based upon his act of bringing about desolation. Do you remember that? Joshua chapter 2, speaking to the spies who were called upon to scout the land of Jericho, she said, We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan at Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And when we heard it, our hearts melted and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. And then here's why. Here's the foundation of her reverence. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. He did this. You were the instrument, but he was the ultimate cause of such desolation. She had faith through her observance of the works of the Lord. Brethren, I pray that God would help us to remember such desolation, God's acts of divine justice and judgment. We have a lot of people wanting to talk about justice and we need to engage them on that conversation. We need to point them to the just acts of God and say, Let's have this conversation about justice. If I were to receive nothing but justice, remove mercy and grace, if I just got justice, I would be in hell right now. Now let's talk about justice. Every time I see an LGBTQ rainbow flag, I'm amazed because what is that? The rainbow but a reminder to us of the fact that God is giving us from day to day, every day that we have life and breath, he's giving us mercy, which we do not deserve. And that rainbow points us back to the historic event of the deluge, which reminds us of what we do, in fact, deserve because of sin. deluge as we mentioned this last Lord's say this is an act of desolation it is the greatest historic act of desolation brought about by God and it is a reminder to us of the fact that God is just and he is holy and we are not and so we ought to tremble like Rahab but he also brings about acts and works of mercy mercy. It says in verse 9, he makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. I have a question for you. What would happen in this world if God did not extend his mercy and grace and just gave all of humanity over to its own depravity? we would have wars without end. It would be perpetual. There would be nothing but anarchy and mayhem. It is a mercy of God that he restrains us and keeps us from maximum evil in this world. And if it were not for that restraining grace, again, this world would be filled with violence. All of this, the psalmist presents to us and commands us to come and behold the works of the Lord. Let me just say this. This is an empirical call, or it is a, a call to empiricism. You know, we hear a lot about the science. We've been been getting taught and scolded even about the science, and I don't even know what the science means. I don't know, is that the monadic article? Is the, that the article of par excellence? I don't even know what people are talking about when they say the science. Science is a method. Science is a me- method. It is a method of observation, testing, and more observation, and then analysis. That's all it is. Many complain that Christianity is antithetical to science or the scientific method. I beg to differ. God Himself, who is the author of all science and mathematics, calls on us to observe and evaluate what he has made. Test and evaluate, examine what I have made, what I have done, the works that I have wrought throughout history. In fact, the first three words in the Hebrew Bible give us one of the most powerful declarations of God's power through his work. Beroshit bara Elohim. In the beginning, Elohim, God, Barah, created. I had to reverse the word order for the English there. Barah, ex nihilo creation, creation out of nothing. I remember in my undergraduate studies in physics, hearing all sorts of discussions and reading articles about how do you get something out of nothing? There is not a scientific form of reasoning or argument that can say you can get something out of nothing and quantum mechanics is not the answer to the question of how do you get a universe out of nothing but the God of almight simply spoke and it existed by the word of the Lord the heavens were made and by the breath of his mouth all their hosts The invisible God made a visible universe, a physical visible universe, so that mankind would worship him and give him glory in view of his work, his work of creation. Paul says, since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, that is, his work of creation, So that they are without excuse. There's your science. We're surrounded by the empirical reality of God's work, it's everywhere. But God has done more than just create the universe, His works are many and they are multifaceted. And I would say to you that the greatest work that God ever has accomplished throughout history and even in the present day is when he takes a sinner and gives them a new and clean heart. That is a miracle of divine grace. In fact, when David cried out to God in Psalm 51, And said, create in me a clean heart. Perhaps you've heard this before. But the verb that is used there is the verb bara. Ex nihilo creation. And the word clean is the Hebrew word tahor, which speaks of purity, that which is without defilement. Mark this. You cannot and I cannot create a clean heart within ourselves. We cannot do it. Only God can create that which is not there. He's already demonstrated that through the creation of the heavens and the earth, and this is our testimony to the lost. What you do not have, God can create. Because when we examine his works, we see that he has demonstrated his power time and again. And that's why I say whenever we share our testimony with others, what are we doing? We're telling others about the fact that God has made us new. We're new creatures in Christ. I didn't do this myself. This was his work in my life. And it continues to be his work as he sanctifies me. That's why he gets not 99% of the glory or 98% of the glory. He gets 100%. And by the way, This whole matter of the empirical analysis of the works of God, it's not just something that we're doing in the present or in the past with Psalm 46, but even in future glory, mark this, the eternal song of heaven, the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb goes like this. And I know you've read this, but hear these words, great and marvelous are thy works. O Lord God, the Almighty, righteous and true are thy ways, thou King of the nations. And then reflecting the same question that we find in Jeremiah 10, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou alone art holy, for all the nations will come and worship before thee, for thy righteous acts have been revealed. Mark this. God is not hiding. He is not hiding. He has revealed his glory. He continues to do so. And he has consummately revealed his glory through the person and work of his son. Brethren, we need to remember and understand that God, from the creation to the cross and to the present day, He has demonstrated and continues to demonstrate his sovereignty over all things. From the smallest events of history to the greatest. And mark this, at no point in time will you ever hear the words uttered from the throne room of God where God says, hey, how did that happen? Or man, I didn't see that coming. You'll never hear that. God is never surprised by anything because he has ordained all. You know, and I talk to people. There was one time I was listening to an individual give his testimony, and he was talking about how he was lucky in life, and he was lucky in this, and he was lucky in that and the other. And when I I hear people talking like that, my first response is to say, uh, no, yeah, don't attribute anything to luck because I don't even know what luck is. We ought to speak as believers of providence, divine providence. This is Sovereign Grace Bible Church. We trust and believe in a sovereign God. Calvin is a bit more forceful when he says, when he rebukes those who speak this way, he calls them literally stupid, who ascribe to fortune that which ought to be traced to the providence of God. Brethren, remember this. All God's divine providence reveals the greatness of his wisdom and the greatness of his works throughout history. Which brings us then to verse 10, where we are brought to this second pairing of commands cease striving and know. Those are two commands side by side cease striving and know as the lord says that i am god you know this is somewhat similar to verse 8 again this idea of come behold bears the idea of stopping what you're doing and looking at the works of god here god issues his interjection and he says cease striving or be still and know that I am God. Now I'm going to say this right now, and this is why I even said it at the beginning, this could warrant weeks. So forgive me for the brevity of our time in this text. But this Hebrew word, Rafa. Is translated it variously as either cease striving, which is what my translation has in the New American Standard translation. Other translators have the words be still. All that Rafa means in its primitive and root sense is this idea of cessation of activity. You can think of a stop sign. A s- stop. In fact. Young's literal translation pretty much goes with that bare bare and basic idea where they translate it as desist. Stop is really what you have in the instruction set here. Stop and know that I am God, says the Lord. I believe that we busy humans need a stop sign many times. Brethren, let us never confuse spiritual or, excuse me, um, religious activity with spiritual, uh, spiritual reality. You can be busy doing all kinds of things, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're growing or are being spiritual in the Lord. Being busy isn't necessarily identical to that. And oftentimes we're caught up with the busyness of the cares of this life such that we need a stop sign to think about what's really important and valuable. Jesus tells us about the rich man, remember, who was big, builder, building bigger and bigger barns to accommodate his crops. And all he was doing was he was expending his energy towards this matter of his amassing greater riches rather than investing his life in the kingdom of God God ended up pulling out the stop sign and ending his life but then it was too late because he didn't learn the lesson as Jesus stipulated so is the man who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God he wasted his life and all this activity for nothing You know, the text here in verse 10 doesn't tell us what we're to desist from. The stop sign doesn't give us a a list of saying, you know, stop this, stop this, stop this, stop this. From the context of the psalm, we could maybe surmise that at the very least. Contextually, we should stop from engaging in and and participating in this matter of ungodly fear, because that is the context of the beginning of the psalm. Desist from ungodly fear, perhaps. Why is ungodly fear so dangerous? Because it distracts us from the true worship of God. It takes our eyes off of Jesus and makes us focus on our circumstances. By the way, when we succumb to ungodly fear, we succumb to ungodly actions. It's that whole fight or flight mentality And when we're in a state of desperation because of ungodly fear, we oftentimes try to bring order to our universe by our own wisdom, guidance, and power. Godly fear is a disease, and we must stop it where we are engaging in that. There's another sense in which, contextually, the psalmist may have in the immediate sense the idea of desisting That is, the nations desisting from their uproar and their rebellion against God. Many commentators have mentioned this as well, and I bring it here because I want to say something about that at the end. So these things would likely be in view, but because there's really no list, I would just suggest to you that this idea of the stop sign, the desist, is a general call to stop any and all thoughts and activities which would stand in the way of our knowing that the Lord is in fact God. And at that point, it doesn't really matter what would stand in the way of that life lesson. I mean, think about it. If there's something that is impeding your progress in knowing that God is God and that you are not, whatever that thing is, The doctrine of radical amputation would say, get rid of it. And this is what I mean when I say that there is something within us that needs to understand, I believe, that we need the stop sign of Psalm 46 so that we would be silent and still before God and contemplate his nature and his works and that he truly is, to use the word properly, awesome. And so Zephaniah 1.7 instructs us, Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. Habakkuk 2.20 reminds us that the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. And in the book of Revelation, in Revelation 8, With all the noisiness, all the loud singing and praise and declarations of God's glory, there is a moment of silence, reverential silence, in view of God's just judgment of the wicked. It says that when he broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about an hour. (coughs) Excuse me, a half an hour. By the way, we were talking about this the other day about the idea of awkward moments of silence. If you're talking to somebody, there's just a moment of silence. Isn't it interesting how maybe even just five seconds of silence might feel awkward for a moment in a conversation? Imagine being in heaven where there's the loud declaration of the glory of God, and yet you have a half an hour of silence. This is not awkward, though, because what is in view here of this moment of silence is a contemplation of the God who has all authority and power to judge the wicked. And it's about to happen. If I may say it this way, we have a need to shut up and shut down enough to be like Mary, In Luke chapter 10, we know that Jesus came to the home of Martha and Mary. Martha, the text says, was distracted in her labors and her preparations of receiving the Lord. But Mary had chosen the better thing. And what is the better thing? She was sitting at the feet of Jesus and listening to him and learning. Being still and listening to the Lord and knowing that he is, in fact, the Lord. And what are we commanded to know? We're commanded to know that he's God. And we're commanded to know that he will be exalted among the nations, and he will be exalted in the earth. And this is the source of the believer's joy and peace and confidence in life. Brethren, brethren, our chief comfort in life does not come from some promise that our life will somehow turn out the way we prefer. Our chief comfort in life does not consist of our having our career maybe go the way we want it to, or our health to be what we want it to be, or our lifespan, or to have the possessions that we would prefer to have or to live in the location that we would prefer to live in. No. Our chief comfort comes in knowing that God is God, and he will be glorified. And brethren, I would say this to the extent that this is not your chief comfort and joy. Go back to this text and meditate heavily. Because this is what God provides to us, as being the basis of our true comfort in knowing that as our refuge, our Lord will, in fact, be glorified. And by the way, <coughs> excuse me, this is, in a sense, we could say it this way, this is God's chief end, is his own glory. Paul says, for from him and through him and to him are all things to him Be the glory forever. Amen. Knowing that we are possessed, we are the possession of this God, knowing that we are his forever, knowing that he will be exalted, is in fact the believer's great comfort and joy. Years ago I went through the book of Revelation I did not go through time charts and things like that. I preached the text, I I applied what I call the golf rule. If any of you play golf, what do you do with a ball? You hit it where it lays, right? I just preached the text as it it is. A lot of people preach that text and put it into a scheme of their particular eschatology. It is a revelation of the glory of Christ. That's what John says of it, and he promises blessings to the hearer and the readers of that prophecy. God wins. Christ triumphs. And it's a comfort to read because with all that's going on in this world, what do we know? We know our Lord is called, and he's called by name. In chapter 5, he's called the victor. And his victory is ours if we take refuge in him. That's my comfort. My comfort is not found in the particular circumstances of my life. My comfort is found in the one who will triumph over all. And he who has all power will, in fact, exhibit that power and authority over all. Brethren, let me review a few concluding implications and exhortations from what we have seen. And again, I, we are surveying and summarizing here, but <clears throat> look at verse 10 again with me. I'd like to make this one point, this first point. Verse 10 reminds us of the importance of theology. Theology. Cease striving, or be still, and know that I am God. What a simple instruction that is. But it is an instruction that brings us to this very important idea that theology, or as the word is constructed, it is theos logos. We study and know God by means of his word. It is the study of God. Theology. And that's exactly what this is. This is a call and a command for us to study God, to be students of his works and to be students of his nature and his works as well because they go together. And it is a call that reminds us of the fact that as we study theology, there's a very important lesson that we will learn in the process. And it is this. God is God, and we are not. Now, most people hear that and they say, "Well, of course, I know I'm not God." But the thing we have to keep in mind is, and I may have mentioned this at the Q and A. I've had so many conversations now. While I'm doing this to say, "Am I repeating myself?" But I believe I mentioned Psalm 50 in verse 21. Where the Lord rebukes the wicked and he says, you thought that I was altogether like you. God basically is saying to the sinner, you know what, here's a problem with you. You think that I'm like you. And by the way, in order for us to think like, that we're like God means that we're also exalting ourselves. We're bringing God down and we're exalting ourselves. This is a part of the human condition. And this is why I'm saying to you that one of the fundamental lessons that we need to learn as we study God's nature and his works is to know that he is God and we are not. And that's why we need to cease and desist from acting as his substitute. Trying to make things work, trying to make things happen, and in ways whereby we're really getting in the way. You know, when I witness to people, I, I want to be zealous. I want to be faithful. The gentleman I, I mentioned in the q and A, I I mentioned David, who was faithful to witness to me. I could not get rid of him. He kept coming back. He wasn't obnoxious, but he kept loving me and loving me and being gracious and kind and kept bringing the gospel to me. He did not quit. By the way, he's an example of not fearing men. With all my enmity, I couldn't get him to be afraid of me. We need that kind of persistence, but mark this. At the end of the day, with all that persistence, he couldn't save me. That's God's work in the end. I don't know if you've had the experience I have when I'm witnessing to somebody. I wish I could just grab them by their earlobes and just shake them and just get the gospel inside of them. But that's really not how it works. What I need to do is pray that, the God, that God himself, who can create a, a clean heart, would work by the Spirit to open the eyes of that individual's heart. I need to be faithful to share the gospel. But at the end of the day, I'm not God. Brethren, we cannot grow in our relationship with God apart from a knowledge of his nature and his works. And I'm going to say more about this in the Sunday school class. But our our own identity is very much caught up with God himself. See, what is my identity? I'm a child of the King. What is my identity? I've been bought with a price, therefore I'm to do what? Glorify God and not be the slaves of, the slave of men. 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Corinthians 7. We need to be careful to establish our identity by means of Scripture, by means of the theology that we learn from Scripture, rather than from the world, because the world wants us to have a different identity. The world is calling us hateful people and all kinds of things. This is not where we get our identity. We get our identity from the God who redeemed us. Here's a second exhortation and implication. Such knowledge of God will nurture a greater childlike trust in the Lord. And this is what we need. We need a childlike trust in the Lord. I've never had a baby that I've held in my arms, look at me and say, um, are you qualified to hold babies? That would be frightening, by the way, to have a little baby even speak like that. But, you know, a baby, what does a baby know? The baby just trusts. Not questioning, just Trusting. It's in that sense that we need to trust the Lord rather than thinking about and questioning, rather, Him who is all-powerful and almighty. John Flavel, who I mentioned last week, who was a contemporary of John Bunyan, who wrote a treatise on fear. Both Bunyan and Flavel wrote works on the fear of God, warning his, their generation of the dangers of the fear of man, They were contemporaries of the Scottish Covenanters, which I also mentioned last Lord's Day. Flavel, who was ejected from the pastorate, said this about our need to trust in God rather than fearing men. He says, If a man do really look to God in a day of trouble and fear as to the Lord of hosts, i.e. one that governs all the creatures, and all their actions, at whose beck and command all the armies of heaven and earth are, and then can rely upon the care and love of his God as a child in danger of trouble reposes on, and commits himself with greater confidence to the care and protection of his father, oh, what peace, what rest must necessarily follow upon this. Who would be afraid to pass through the midst of armed troops and regiments whilst he knows that the general of the army is his own father? The more power this filial fear or familial fear of God obtains in our hearts, the less will you dread the power of the creature. The king of the universe is our Lord. Why would we fear anyone or anything? One third final exhortation I'd like to share. My prayer is is that this text would be a comfort to our hearts, but that also that it would be an instrument that we can use in sharing Christ with others. Matthew Henry addresses this, and as I said before, many commentators point out the fact that this command of be still is not just for the believer, but it's also for the nations who give up their rebellious uproar against God himself. And so Matthew Henry says this. He says, let his own people be still. Let them be calm and sedate and tremble no more at the uproar of the nations. But know to their comfort that the Lord is God. He is God alone and will be exalted above the heathen. But then he says regarding the unbeliever. He says this. Let his enemies be still and threaten no more. But know it to their terror that he is God. One infinitely above them, and that will certainly be too hard for them. Let them rage no more, for it is all in vain. He that sits in heaven laughs at them, and in spite of all their impotent malice against his name and honor, he will be exalted among the heathen, and not merely his own people. He will be exalted in the earth, and not only merely in the church. Men will set up themselves, will have their own way and do their own will, but let them know that God will be exalted. He will have his way, will do his own will, <clears throat> will glorify his own name, and wherein they deal proudly. He will be above them and make them know that he alone is God. This is why I requested the scripture reading in Isaiah 45. God says, I have sworn by myself. The author of Hebrews reminds us of the fact that he does this because there's no authority higher than he I have sworn by myself the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back that to me every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. They will say of me only in the Lord our righteousness and strength. Men will come to him and all who were angry at him shall be put to shame. Brethren, may Psalm 46 be a deep and abiding encouragement to your soul. May it also be a text that you would use with those who you know who do not know Christ. That you would remind them of the fact that God will be exalted among the nations. He will be glorified. And with all the uproar and rebellion that is offered up against him, he'll speak a word and the earth will melt. It's all vanity, and we need to warn them in love of this coming day of judgment and remind them of the fact that all who take refuge in the Son are blessed. Psalm 2 and verse 12. Will you pray with me? Precious Heavenly Father, May it be that these words from Psalm 46 would be deeply embedded in our own hearts, minds, and souls. May it be, Lord, that we would grow in our confidence in you, that we would have a greater childlike trust in you. And by this same text, Lord, may we warn others, warning them of the coming day of judgment, but also exhorting them to take refuge in the Son, There is hope. Even in the midst of this coming judgment, there is hope. And there is only one hope. And that is the hope that every believer has in the Lord Jesus Christ in view of his finished work on the cross. So, Father, we thank you for the blessings that we have received from this text, this beautiful and wonderful psalm. We give you glory for it. And we do so in the fair and precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.